DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. I'm gonna fly higher I'm gonna fly higher So I'm here today talking to Aki Garrett and I'm gonna give a little bit of the bio because he's modest but he's an exceptional business person and uh, right now he's focused on global alliances in the telecom space at Lenovo. Prior to that he worked at uh, CBS, he's worked at Wall Street, he's been in the investment banking field and one of the things that's pretty powerful is that he also got his MBA uh, from the uh, Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. And so we're, we're super excited, uh, Aki, to have you on board and, uh, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Don. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So one of the things we want to dive into as, as we look at kind of our landscape in our country today is obviously, Aki, you and I are both African-American males pushing our way through corporate America. I'd like you to dig into a little bit your perspective of that feeling, that experience being the only, whether that's through your education, whether that's in corporate America, and how have you thought about that? How is how is race and success kind of shaped the way you you look at at the business lens? Um, this question has been uh, something I've thought about, you know, often in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be the only one in the room, right? And for me, I kind of approach it from two perspectives. One, I approach it from a source of empowerment and then a source of, of responsibility, right? So, and I'll, I'll kind of delve into both of those quickly. So empowering in the sense that diversity, as we all know it, is just good business, right? Whether it's diversity in the classroom, diversity in the professional corporate America realm, wherever there is a corpus of people getting together, diversity needs to be an underpinning within that, in that room. And so from an academic perspective, having grown up in Philadelphia and gone to a predominantly white institution that I think had approximately, I think less than one-tenth of one percent of the student population was of minority descent or, or a person of color, you know, it was something that I looked at, again, as a responsibility that I was there, I needed to represent um, and I needed to step up to the plate. And mind you, I wasn't a 
diversity student or, or a student of color coming from the suburbs, I also was coming from a different socioeconomic background. I was coming from inner city Philadelphia out to the wealthiest of suburbs in Pennsylvania. And I was expect I expected to compete. And my mother and my father and my siblings, everyone expected me to compete uh, and to do well and to perform. And so I took it as a as my responsibility to to I shouldered it as my responsibility to compete and to be at the top of my class and to be active in the community, to be, you know, I ended up being the vice president in high school of, of the school. Uh, I ended up uh, being a captain of the cross country team and the basketball team. I was principal, you know, a principal actor in most of our school plays. I was, you know, in our acapella group and, and, and led our acapella group as a senior. So I tried to take leadership roles and leadership positions and deliver. And then, you know, that became a source of empowerment, right? When you realize that, you can compete and you realize that you can be successful despite being the only person of color in the room. Uh, it becomes a, a, a tool of empowerment and it becomes self-empowerment, right? And you feel like you can step into any realm and any arena of yourself uh, and a confidence in what you know, who you are, and the authenticity to be who you are uh, in those realms to deliver in both the educational setting as I went through higher education and so forth and then into the professional world. So when I stepped onto Wall Street, which is notorious for having a problem with underrepresented not only attracting, but more importantly, retaining uh, senior talent that is of underrepresented minority descent, it was old hat for me. It was like, okay, here you are, yet in, in the you know, 50th arena of your life where you are one of one or one of three or one of five versus you know, in a room with you know, the predominant audience of, of, of non-minorities that is you know, probably numbering in the hundreds. How do you perform? How do you, how do you step up to the plate and represent? In colloquial terms, how do you put on for your people? Amen. And, and I appreciate the way that, that you and your family put that support around you, but also that pressure on you, right, yeah. to succeed in spite of those circumstances. And we're similar. And I was raised that way. And my dad would tell me all the time, he said, the world isn't fair because you hope it to be. You got to win anyway. As you succeed, you have a chance to create pavement right where there's a dirt road. And it seems like your 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 family was very similar. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And when you lay down that pavement, you got to turn back around and make sure that you're giving direction to the future generation to walk down that pavement, so it's an easier path, right? So let me drill into that for a minute. You know, for for those that don't have that attitude or perspective, or you know, some people weren't raised by parents that gave them the opportunity to dream big. Right. Some people were raised by folks that encouraged them to kind of settle for. Right. How would you help people with that mindset that are going into a new corporation and don't feel that comfort of having others around them that look or talk or have the same background? What are some of the things that can help them mentally understand and push through? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, you know, depending on the, the, the environment you walk into, you've, you've got to surround yourself with mentors. You've got to surround, you've got to, you've got to go seek out those folks that can give you a little bit of that you two can make it you two can succeed that i think that tact tactic is very person specific and what i mean by that is not everybody's outgoing not everybody's confident in themselves to reach out to somebody that they, that they don't know and say hey knock knock i'm a you know first year i'm a junior person i'm just starting my post-college career i'm just starting at this x y and z firm you know wanted to connect and just reach out and, and meet somebody else you know who has walked in my shoes before and, you know, see if, you know, we can set up coffee or I can seek guidance from time to time as I try to navigate my career. That, that's tough. But, you know, I think those are the types of things that you have to be able to, you have to, you have to put yourself out there a little bit and it's not always comfortable, but I think it's necessary. No, that's powerful. 
Talk to me a little bit about the value you derived from your MBA experience at Duke, right? Like what, yeah. what are some of the, like, and I'll, I'll, I'll layer the question a little bit, right? So there's, there's a debate. Should you go into industry, earn your stripes, bootstrap as an entrepreneur? Should you get this MBA experience? What, what's your lens with what you'd recommend to a young person coming up and, and your experience in the decision that you made that worked out great for you? Yeah, first and foremost, I would say an MBA is an expensive investment. It's an investment in yourself, right? And so you've got to weigh the actual dollar cost vis-a-vis the ROI that you either anticipate getting or hope to get, right? The MBA is not for everybody. Um, and I've had this conversation for some reason more now in the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months than I have previously. And I got my MBA and I graduated in 2011. So it's been you know, a few years. Um, but for some reason, over the last 12 to 18 months, it's come up more often, uh, and primarily because I think it's been a good market. Folks use their MBA as a chance to reset, right? To reset their careers and to, and to figure out what it is that they're really passionate about. But in saying all that, I would say that when you look at an MBA, I think the, the two big things I, I tell you know, aspiring MBA students is that you're going to get out of it are the network and the close friendships. And, and I guess the third thing I would say is the ability to think strategically and to think on your feet. The ability for you to think on your feet and to think about business problems and to dissect business problems and structure them, structure solutions in, in a way that makes sense. The last thing I'll say is you will probably forget 95% of the stuff you learn in business school in terms of, you know, the Black-Scholes you know, option pricing model or discounted cash flow or a marketing tactics or marketing, you know, speak. You're going to be an expert in whatever you do every single day. But, but that's going to be one small sliver of what you've done in business school. You're going to forget everything else, right? So you have to be comfortable knowing that. The reason why you're investing in business school, the things that are going to last, the things that you won't forget are the experiences, which are shaped by the people, the network, and then those higher order, the way it almost rewires your brain to think, agnostic of industry and agnostic of job function. Your brain is wired to think in a way that is, how do I solve complex business problems? How can I do that quickly and in a very focused and structured way? Uh, That's powerful. I mean, especially the last part in terms of the mindset. Right. Because the facts and figures of it do go away independent of level of education. But having a mindset to solve complex problems quickly, that is a leadership ability that can pay you. That's (laughs) missing in the White House. Lots of parts of Congress. (laughs) We could we could have a whole side conversation about that for for hours. Uh, One of the things that when I think about your career and in our, our conversations, talk to me about a business challenge that didn't look amazing in your career, but you fought through it, overcame, worked out in the end. Struggle, victory. Yeah, I mean, I, th- there's so many. Um, we could take the podcast network idea that that that, that created at, at at CBS, right? And you know, this is back in 2000, and I want to say 14. Right after the Renaissance, uh, right after Serial came out, absolutely went viral, just kind of dominated the airwaves for, for a period of time. And then all of a sudden people were like, well, hold, this podcast thing is a really powerful medium. You know, I'm sitting at CBS thinking, you know, what can we do where, you know, we have CBS radio, which is the third largest radio network in the country. We've got top flight talent. You know, we can leverage not only our radio presence, but also our you know, <laughs> national network presence, the CBS 
studios from a film and television perspective. I mean, we have access to all the talent in the world. And if I email, email Stasi Schroeder, or if I email Tom Green, if I email any top flight celebrity and they see the CBS.com, I'm going to get a response, right? How can we leverage that power, the power of that brand to actually build something and be kind of first to market, you know, or if not first to market, you know, early to market in terms of a podcast network. And so, you know, it was easier than I thought to sell through the concept. It was harder than I thought to build mm. in the sense that the amount of horsepower it took to day in and day out, come in and think about how do we want to structure this network um, on the front end? And, you know, where are we good at from an advertising perspective and aligning our advertisers with particular verticals to make sure they have appetite for the content? You know, how do we put rules and regs? How do we structure the contracts? All those things, literally, we had to create from essentially nothing. And then to complicate things, how do you then create a network that's going to, you know, ideally grow very, very fast, given the fact that we have all these tentacles in the marketplace and access to all this talent? Um, and then how do you put into to place all that technology, whether it's a remote setup to record a podcast? And mind you, this was in early days of podcasting, you know, the podcast yep. of Renaissance, which was not last year. It was much more complex. And so just thinking through that and, again, having, you know, major corporations that are traded publicly live quarter to quarter earnings, right? So you've got to produce in 90 days. you got to, you got to produce every 90 days. There's a, there's a report card. And so building something from scratch, it was constant pressure, top-down pressure to build this network to justify my existence, why they're paying me the salary, right? And so delivering on that with essentially starting from zero template was a lot of creative business thinking, structuring. How do I do something in the interim to show results and to show that I'm delivering, but know that it's going to get better and it's, it's, going to, it's not going to look the same in the, the next quarter, right? Because we got to make it a better product, but I need to show results in the short term. So what I think business school and kind of dovetailing this all into that question around business school, I think business school really gave me the confidence to be able to think kind of holistically about a business problem, right? I wasn't thinking about just from a technology perspective. I wasn't thinking about just from like an HR talent recruitment perspective. I wasn't thinking about just from like a legal perspective or a business perspective. I was literally connecting all the dots because I was so content and so relying so much on different parts of the business was cogent. And I could go to my president and say, okay, I've literally looked at every single aspect of this business and I've structured it in a way that I can sit in front of you for an hour and give you a PowerPoint presentation. When we're done. You're going to walk away and say, okay, this guy's got it for one. And two, I understand it as the president. And I can then relay that to my senior folks at the corporate level. No, that's, uh, I appreciate the, the response immensely. And, you know, one of the things that you keep bringing up, but in different ways, is to power to think clearly on the fly. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean in the meeting, that means you've done your homework to the degree. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. know your subject matter. To the degree, a lot of people, whether it's in sales, whether you are working in HR, whether you're an entrepreneur, you got to know your numbers, you got to know your business, you got to know your yep. audience, yep. right? So you can consolidate all those things into a clear message, right? Absolutely. So that you can get the outcome that you want. And and I, I appreciate that that response. Now, as you move from CBS, you also worked at um, She Knows Media. Yes. And and you worked on a lot of uh, big things there. Could you share some of those that experience and some of those metrics and some of the brands yeah. that you worked with? Yeah, sure. So she knows is a very interesting company. So I left, you know, I prior to, to CBS, I was at ABC. So I kind of traded three letters for three letters, you know, two major media companies, you know, publicly traded. And I made the in some ways very unconventional choice to kind of get a step out of the the news and I would say entertainment arena and more into the lifestyle arena. Uh, she Knows Media at the time, when I went there, I think it was 2015, was the largest digital media publisher in the country. 
it was private equity owned, owned by Greyhill Partners at the time. The company was had grown purely by acquisition up until that point. And so when I came into Shino's, I originally came in to do kind of just pure business development, looking at strategic opportunities. And then my, our, my CEO approached me and, and asked me to actually run our blogger network. And at the time, uh, it was kind of during a time of transition at the company. At the same time, he asked me to run our blogger network. My boss, who was the SVP, departed the company and went to pursue another venture. So, you know, not only was I kind of new to the company, I was also, you know, exposed. And at this point, it was me reporting directly into the CEO. And so, again, kind of finding yourself in one of those situations where you've got to, uh, I shoulder the responsibility of those before me, right? Which yep. is, you know, I got to step up to the plate. You know, I'm the only, I mean, the company had a lot of males. I was the only African-American senior manager, right? And so I got promoted to SVP. So I was, you know, I was one of the top 10 people at the company and running about, responsible for about 60% of the P&L of the company, right? So, you know, again, having been in the same position so many times before, I felt not only empowered, but also felt a responsibility to perform and to deliver for more than just myself, you know, for myself, for my family, for, you know, people of color. So I actually wound up growing that business. When I took it over, it was about 25% of the revenue, the, our publisher network business. I grew it to about 60% of our revenue. That was probably, that was, you know, that was, that was my focus because when I took that business over, it was it was clear that we needed to to work towards an acquisition, and so it was to really grow the business, hypercharge it. I led a bunch of big you know uh, publisher deals and you know, brought on major publishers onto our platform that were delivering billions of impressions to us uh, that we were able to monetize. Uh, we were able to help them out with traffic and audience and content creation. We were acquired in 2018, Penske Media, which is owned by the son of the famed Roger Penske, who owns the uh, NASCAR owner as well as Penske trucks that probably all of us have used to move at one point or another from one house yeah. to one apartment to another. Let me transition just a little bit to, to family. Mm-hmm. So you have two girls, you got two girls. Yes. Married. How do you, your, your wife's professional, growing a major career, making yeah. it happen. How do you keep it together? How do you keep it progressing? What's that marriage, family, entrepreneur, <laughs> businessman secret? Yeah, I, 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 listen. I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to profess to have any answer. I guess on the outside it looks like we're keeping it together, but sometimes <laughs> if, if you get under the hood, you're probably like this thing is falling apart. You know, my wife and I find ourselves in a very unique position. Um, you know, get to your point, she's a working professional. Uh, she's in the pharma industry. Uh, she also went to Duke for business school. That's where we met. I've got two young children, two years of age. One actually turns two tomorrow. Um, and then my uh, I have a four year old. Yeah, I mean, how do we keep it together? I mean, I, 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 I think the unique thing is that we're down. We're, we moved to North Carolina about two years ago because we love the area. We wanted to get out of New York, but we knew we were leaving our kind of nucleus. You know, her family's in New York. My family's in Philadelphia. So we kind of totally abandoned our nucleus. I think that's actually brought us together and made us stronger um, because we realized that, you know, you know, we said we all we got, right? She and I and, and our two children. So, you know, it's a lot of we have. Luckily, and I praise the, the most high, we have found a way to kind of make things work, right? And to pick each other up and to lean on one and each other when we need it, right? It hasn't been easy, you know, but it's, uh, it's what we signed up for, right? And so, you know, being, you know, being responsible adults, it's what we have to do. So we, we, we make it work and, you know, we have luckily come down to North Carolina and built up great friendships such as yourself, Don, and which has been helpful. So, yeah, I mean, we just, we, we hack it every day we get up, we just figure it out. <laughs> That's awesome. As we wind our, our time together, and I, and I appreciate kicking it with you and, and learning and, and just listening and, and also just cheering for you uh, for what you're doing and what you're pushing for. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about our, our society? Uh, do, you want, do you want the PC answer? Or you want the, the raw 
Nah, man, let's uh, let's just kick it, man. We just we kick it. <laughs> All right. So I grew up. I grew up in a family that uh, you know, you know, we 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 practice you know spirituality, a faith, a way of life that was very different than most quote unquote black families in America. My mom was you know till the day she died. My mom is still alive, but till till the day that Malcolm X's wife passed away, they were best of friends. Right. I used to hang out with Malcolm X's grandson he used to hang out at my house and we would do he was back when i was a child we would do sleepovers and you know mumi abu jamal who is a political prisoner on death row is a very close family friend of my mother's from his days as a journalist um so i grew up in a very pan-africanist social justice focused family and so for me that's always had an impact on the way i viewed and perceived the world right and oddly enough a very pan-africanist family would send their their youngest son to a non-pan-africanist to non-pan-africanist institutions right? right to my to i think really helped me from a confidence perspective and realizing who i was and not trying not going to seek definition but having already been defined existing in my and standing in my own truth and my own authenticity in those environments so i didn't go to those environments seeking to find myself i knew who i was and i knew what i needed to do and so that gave me you know, shoulder that responsibility and to feel that empowerment, right? And to, and, and, and to empower others, right? And so to answer your question, and I, I lay all that as groundwork because if I had the magic wand, you know what I would do? I would undo the informal institution of white privilege. I would erase white privilege. To me, there will never be equity in this world. There will never be full diversity and inclusion until white privilege is non-existent. And, and define and give me an example of because a good friend of mine, my mentor and, and good friend, Grant Willard, middle aged white guy, lifted me up and mentored me. And we've we've worked and been friends for years. We did a podcast on ask a white guy, ask a black guy. And so we got mm -hmm. into it. So your your conversation, we're, we're all about controversy, but we, we're, we're about to release some 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 good stuff. But anyway, okay. we talked about white privilege. So define define white privilege, your perspective. Having a liberty and advantage simply because you're white. Simply because you're white, right? The ability to walk around. I, I, again, I went to predominantly white, white institutions my entire life. Some of my best friends are white. Most of my best friends are white outside of my family. My family, they're my best friends, right? My, my brothers and my nieces and my nephews. Those, that, that, that's, I grew up in a household where like everybody else was an associate and those were your best friends. But to put it in normal American context, most of my best friends are white. But the reason why I come back to that is because there's a certain privilege and a certain allowance and a certain freedom and liberty to, to be who you are when you are white that's not afforded every other race and so literally when you think about it, you boil it down to its very basic compound it is literally the shade of your skin and a, a a phenotypical and genotypical construct that defines access privilege opportunity comfort success failure security security that's literally boiled down to something that nobody controls so to who's the comedian that did the race lottery um dave Chappelle. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You literally <laughs> you literally hit the genetic jackpot 
there are things that, that you're afforded just because of the color of your skin that literally create trauma, anxiety, and all the types of mental disorders in other communities. Like the ability to walk down the street at midnight or run outside at midnight and not get pulled over by a cop because they think you're robbing somebody or you're running from something simply because of the color of your skin, to me, is it's, it's mind-blowing. And I think it shows up, it shows up not only just kind of the germane, you know, running down the street at midnight because you want to do a late night run because it's not 90 degrees outside in the summertime. It also shows up in the, in the boardroom, right, where you're afforded opportunities. You might be underqualified versus somebody who's overqualified and you just get the opportunity because of the color of your skin, right? And so there's a privilege that's afforded to them that is, to me, it's, it's until, you, until you undo that, it, it'll never be equal. Right. And to some extent, I can argue that equality is, is, is a total myth. Right. You know, some people are short, some people are tall, some people are pretty, some people are ugly. Like, it just is what it is. Right. But until until you deconstruct this, this notion of white privilege, I think it's going to be hard for us as a society to really, really achieve those things that folks like you, Don, and, and, and you, Jason, and that diversity and inclusion and, 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 and equality and access. It's going to be really, really hard to achieve those things unless you're willing to surrender that quote unquote advantage. Nobody ever surrenders, willingly surrenders an advantage, right? I appreciate that that answer. Last last couple of things as we as we, we keep rolling, but I, I don't want to miss anything while I've got you. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about some of the mentoring that you do, uh, some of the organizations that you're you're involved in, just some of the nonprofit work and things yeah. that you're really proud of that's part of your give back. Yeah. I mean one of the things I saw in, when I was living in my time in New York, I spent about five of a nonprofit called Resilience Advocacy Project that literally addressed this idea of social injustice, social inequality, and privilege, right? It was literally a nonprofit that went and trained youth advocates in the most marginalized communities in New York City to actually advocate, how to advocate for themselves, right? And so it, was not, it, wasn't about, it wasn't about mentoring, it was about empowering. Right. And giving them the tools to be their own advocates in their community. Right. And then they could go out and take that education and go teach their peers on how to be actual advocates in their community. And so we had a lot of um, capstone projects. And one of them actually was very instrumental in getting stop and frisk repealed in New York, um, because, again, stop and frisk, although, you know, stop and frisk was, was in New York City was due in terms of one incarceration of innocent people of color. And it was, you know, when you look at the stop and frisk data, it was heavily targeted towards young black and, and Hispanic men, right? And so again, you know, looking at that, that is things around privilege and, and race and class and things like that. And so we were looking to, to, to help people who are living in those neighborhoods who are adversely affected by stop and frisk to actually dismantle it. And so we work closely, you know, in terms of, you know, working closely with local and state legislatures and, and, and lawmakers and, and, and councilmen. We had our students and our, our young people engage with them to, to really give them boots on the ground anecdotes and boots on the ground solutions on how to actually achieve what they want to achieve, but not do it in a way that was, you know, adverse to the actual you know, community. So I, I, I was board chair at, at RAP for about two years, and I've come down here and gotten involved with uh, the Men's Achievement Center at North Carolina Central um, and mentoring some of the young men that are coming through the uh, Men's, Achievement program, Men's Achievement Center program at North Carolina Central. So, you know, helping with everything from career advice to looking at uh, business plans to talking to them just about, you know, life on campus, being a young, you know, a young man or young woman and living on campus and, and, and the things you're going through and 
you know, in, in, interfacing with your peers and kind of being in this new environment where you're away from home, all the freedom in the world to make decisions. How do you best utilize these next four years of your life? How do you position yourself for post-college success? How do you, uh, you know, view and, and think about career, think about, you know, where I want to live and, and, and the, even decisions beyond that, you know, how do I, you know, think about, you know, balancing work and life and balancing, you know, marriage and, and, and courting somebody? How do I do that and still remain successful and focused on my, my goals and ambitions? I'm not, you know, a lot of these young, young folks want to be entrepreneurs. How do I do that, you know, and become successful at becoming an entrepreneur and getting my idea from just, you know, a concept to actual an MVP? So, you know, really just, you know, across the board, helping these young folks as they kind of go through this journey that we call, you know, higher education and then post higher education coming out of that. How do they how do they position themselves for, for success, you know, career wise and just in life? Friend, I have uh, I've enjoyed it. I'm appreciative and uh, and excited for what you what you are, but also what you're becoming. And uh, I appreciate you taking some time with us, man. Nuggets of wisdom. I did. I had to get up and go get a pen so I could write some stuff down. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I got to get my, get, get my pen going on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll begin your feed every week with new episodes from entrepreneurs who inspire you to do more. So be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you have a minute, give us a rating and a review as well. This podcast is edited and produced by Earphones. If you're looking for more information on how full-service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit EarFluence.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.